thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Okay, coming soon. There we go. It's going. It's going. 515 knots. Keep running. There's the canisters. Right, let's go left. 240. Keep running. That's the airfield. No Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Well, after 125 episodes, I think that is still my favorite intro. It's from episode 48, in case you recognize it. It's about the tornado. And in fact, those are tornado crew speaking there during Desert Storm. And this episode is about the Buccaneer. But as you'll soon learn in our interview, they kind of go hand in hand. And they were there together in Desert Storm helping each other out. So I just thought we could replay that because, frankly, I enjoy listening to it. Anyway, hello everyone and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and as you just heard, this is episode 125. We're talking about the Buccaneer. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. I certainly did. I won't give it away. It's coming up in a couple of minutes, but first, you know the drill, a couple of quick announcements and some listener questions. All right. Let's see. Gosh, we are coming into the holidays, aren't we? This year is wrapping up and we're going to have some different merchandise offerings. If you're subscribed to our newsletter, you might see that as well as on social media. We're going to try to help you find the right gift from someone for you. So you can forward emails that we'll be sending you to those who are shopping for you, or just tell them to go to our website and check out all the cool merchandise because come on, a t-shirt with a fighter jet is way better than a boring tie, right? That's right. Anyway, let's see what else is going on. We had a really fun episode last time on 21st Century Light Attack. Some folks wrote to offer various opinions, but one I did get a couple times is, hey, you only touched on a few aircraft. What about the Scorpion jet and a few others? Well, as you know, we do our best to cover everything, but we can't always get everything covered. So uh, we can always circle back to those. And in fact, it turns out one of our past guests works for the air tractor company that do that 802 you know, the crop duster turned (laughs) military aircraft. So who knows, maybe we'll circle back around and talk about that a little bit more. What else is going on? I'm actually in Atlanta tonight. And for the first time on a flight, I had one of the passengers recognize my voice because of the announcements and uh, waited for me as they were deplaning. And I was saying goodbye to people. And he said, Hey, you're jello. I listened to the show. So that was really awesome. So Charles, big shout out to you. Thanks very much. I didn't know how long it would take, but I guess this means I've made it right. (laughs) Outstanding. 
All right, cool. Hey, how about a couple quick listener questions? Because this is probably the last time. Well, I'll probably have Boat do a couple next episode, but we'll talk later on this episode about what's coming up in December. But as a sneak peek, probably won't be any listener questions because we're going to have a themed month. At any rate, got a couple listener questions and let's start with a phone call. Hi, Jello. My name is Paul Chestovich. I'm calling you from Las Vegas, Nevada, nearby Nellis Air Force Base. Love the podcast. Really appreciate it. In particular, I really appreciate how you cover so many different aircraft. I've always been a fan of the fan favorites like the F-14, B-51, B-17, and so on, but I really appreciate how you cover so many different airplanes, and it's given me a lot of interest in some of the other ones. My question relates to flight time. Anytime you're interviewing a guest and with yourself, you're always mentioning how many hours you have in a certain airplane. So my question is, how do you guys record that? And what exactly counts as a flight hour? Is the time recorded down to the minute? Is it like the nearest quarter hour or nearest hour? Is it have to be time in the air? Does time on the ground count? Does time taxiing count? What exactly counts for a flight hour? And finally, how exactly do you record it? Is it at the end of a flight, you go and enter flight data, and it tells you exactly how many hours you spent in the plane, and then you have a total that automatically tallies? Or is it something that you have to do manually? So that's my question. Uh, I really appreciate the podcast. I love it. Keep up the great work. And thank you to yourself and all of your co-hosts and guests for their service and their sacrifice. Thank you. All right, Paul, thanks for your question. And thanks for listening to the show. So it might have changed by now, but the way I did it, I wrote down the moment I took the runway for takeoff, even if I had to sit for another little bit or not. And then after I landed, I also wrote down the time. I did both of those on my kneeboard card. When we got back to maintenance control and filed our paperwork, in the old days, when I first started flying T-34s, we literally had to fill out a form, a paper form that had tear off sheets. And if you pushed hard enough, you could leave one with maintenance, take one to the operations folks and keep one for yourself. Uh, in F-18s throughout the rest of my career, we had different electronic computer you know, programs that we would uh, fill in the times. But literally, whatever time I wrote down from taking the runway until after landing plus five minutes, whatever that turned into is what you would uh, do. So if it was exactly 90 minutes or an hour and a half, you would put down 1.5. If it was exactly, here comes public math again, but right, an hour and 15 minutes, I think that was 1.3 because it was 1.25, but then rounded up. You don't count taxi time. If you're on the flight deck and carrier ops, even if you stop and get gas, you count all that. Uh, apparently, if you're in space, you count all of your space time. So we might have heard. But otherwise, no, it's different in the airlines now. As soon as they close the door, it starts. As soon as you open the door, it stops. Frankly, I don't even look at my logbook. I don't even have any idea how many civilian hours I have because it doesn't matter in an airliner. Some might dispute that, but that's my opinion. So yeah, take off to landing plus five minutes except for carrier operations. These days, I bet some of the more modern aircraft have the little computer thing that you put in the jet in the first place. And when you take it out, it probably downloads it for you. So that's what I did at the regular Hornet though. All right, next, let's take an email. This is from Chris and he says, Hey Jello, I hope all is well. I've been listening to the F-14 Tomcast and got to thinking, what's preventing us from refurbishing a Tomcat to fly at air shows? Are there really no spare parts? I recall from your F-14 episode, I believe it's Iran who still flies them. Probably no chance of any kind of exchange, huh? Thank you, sir. <laughs> All right, and that's from Chris in Riverside. Well, Chris, why don't you send that question directly to Crunch and Bio, who, oh, by the way, just had an episode on Iranian F-14s. 
questions at f14tomcast.com and let them answer that. Now, that being said, yeah, it ain't happening, dude. Sorry. (laughs) It was hard enough to keep them flying when they had the full support of the Navy. Nowadays, no, forget about it. I don't know what the Iranians are doing. I've actually not listened to that episode yet. Life has gotten busy for me. I'm trying to keep up. I hope it's a good one. They've got Mikey, I guess, is his alter ego name because the person was uh, a little concerned about his safety, talking about Iranian F-14s. At any rate, send an email to those guys. Crunch and Bio will cover that. They don't do it on their episodes, but I think they're going to do like special sessions once in a while. Anyway, their show is going well. And if you're wondering what we're talking about, search your favorite podcast app for F14, actually F-14 in this case, TomCast, like the word Tom and then C-A-S-T, huh? clever. And uh, you'll find a cool podcast all about the F-14. It's going to last for a year and they're up to episode, I think five. So be about 26 episodes that'll end next August. All right, next, let's take another phone call. Hey, this is Ryan from Atlanta. I just want to say thank you guys for such an awesome show. I stumbled upon it one day and have been listening nonstop. It's so interesting. And I love the fact that I can listen to it with my kids in the car and not have to worry about uh, profanities or any vulgarities being used. And uh, hopefully we'll pass on the love of aviation to them. My question is, are there any planes that were not used by the Navy that you guys wish had been, you know, in a perfect world if they could have been used on a carrier to something you would have loved to fly. Thank you. Well, Ryan, first off, we had some uh, obscenities, I guess it was, on the CH-53. I hope you forgive us for that. And we have a little bit actually coming up on this. The donkey altar name is going to come up. So if you've got young ears and you're concerned, then you're so forewarned. My youngest kid is now a freshman, and frankly, I've given up. I'm sure he's heard and probably used, and that I don't allow, but I know he's heard just about everything, and so I succumbed to society on the F word and everything else. I still don't use it because I just don't think it's very creative. But that wasn't your question. Your question was, what aircraft do I wish we could have on the flight deck? And that's an interesting one. Now, there was some discussion after last week's episode on light attack about bringing back the a1 sky raider someone commented i think it was on youtube gosh i mean obviously there's all kinds of cool stuff we could have i guess lacking anything more imaginative i would say a navalized f-22 but a navalized f-22 would not be like the current f-22 the air force flies because right the airframe would have to be so much stronger you'd have to have a hook the landing gear would be different so it wouldn't perform the same so eh, in a perfect world you know or wave the magic wand Let's go with a uh, Navy F-22. That'd be pretty cool. All right, then. Hey, you know what? A lot going on in my life right now. I won't bore you with all of it, but suffice it to say, it's late. I just landed, and I've got to get this to my producer so we can get this out on time. Lots happening, like I said, in my life going on, but uh, I won't bore you with that right now. Why don't we get to the interview on the Buccaneer, and I take a different approach on this interview, and it wasn't just, as I say at the end, because I was lazy. It did have to do with having enough time to prepare, but at any rate, I think you'll really enjoy this with John Sullivan. So let's get to it, and I'll see you on the flip side. All right, my guest today is Mr. John Sullivan. He is tuning in from, I don't know, where are you in the UK there, John? I'm in the county of uh, Nottinghamshire in the UK. All right, and we've been working at this for, what, about a year? I think we started in 2020? Yeah, and that's entirely my uh, elusiveness, um, so I must apologize for you having to track me down. But no, no. As soon as you contacted me, I made a point of, um, don't forget this one, we'll get back to that when I can. 
Well, welcome to the show, John. And this episode is going to be unlike any other episode I've ever recorded. And do you know why? Probably don't. You're filling me with trepidation. <laughs> I don't know the first thing about the Buccaneer. Ah. Not a clue. I don't know if it has one engine or two. I had to look it up every time I spelled it to see if it was two C's, two N's, two E's, what? Oh, right. Okay. And so literally, I don't have any notes. I've got my browser closed for the internet. You, sir, are going to completely school me on this. Now, before I let you respond, I realize there are many Brits gasping. And I do apologize to the Queen and everyone else, because I understand this is a beloved aircraft, but I really know nothing about the Buccaneer. Well, you're not alone, actually, there, Vincent. <laughs> it was a bit of a, an ugly duckling in service in the UK. So it was loved by the Royal Navy initially. The RAF didn't really want to have the Buccaneer. It was forced upon the Royal Air Force when uh, its favoured platform, something called the TSR2 program, was cancelled. The Royal Air Force then set its sights on F-111s, and they were denied by the government of the day as well. So rather begrudgingly took the Buccaneer into service. Oh, wow. But then the crews grew to love it. Okay. And it did have something of a, a legendary reputation and status thereafter. But it didn't see the widest service in terms of numbers. Longevity was pretty impressive at about 40 years. But no, I don't think you'll be alone in uh, having some questions. Well, I'm looking forward to you selling me on this airplane. And so by the end, I hope to be in love with the Buccaneer. But first, let's start with you. And again, this wasn't, by the way, just me being lazy. I just thought it'd be kind of interesting to not do any research for once. And I might regret this, but I don't <laughs> even know anything about you. And I haven't mentioned your rank or if you're retired. So let's start with you. Where are you from? What did you do in the military? And if you retired, if you could tell me your terminal rank. And I don't even know if you have a call sign or a nickname. So let's start with you. So um, my name is John Sullivan. I go by JS. Not nearly as exciting as those call signs you guys like to uh, <laughs> award yourselves. Yeah. It came about by necessity. I don't think I ever served in a squadron with fewer than three, maybe four Johns. I think it peaked at six. So we just simplified to John, Johnny, JS, JP, JD. So that's my call sign, if you like. I joined the Royal Air Force straight from school. I applied to go to university, but I only ever saw that as a path to get into the Royal Air Force, I was just absolutely set on becoming a fighter pilot. I went along and applied for a cadetship to be sponsored through university, but the Royal Air Force offered me something called direct entrance, hmm. which seemed to me to be the fast track to get where I wanted to go. So I seized that with both hands, joined the Royal Air Force at the age of 18, uh, went straight through training. In subsequent years, there were all manner of delays to people. And I, you know, my heart goes out to people taking four, five, six, seven years to get through training. I blasted through in three years flat and ended up on a frontline squadron at the age of 21, flying a nuclear strike aircraft. So uh, that was my introduction to flying. I uh, served for a total of 33 years. I left wow. a little over two years ago. My last tour of duty was actually in the US, serving in the NATO headquarters in Virginia. Yeah. At the end of nine years overseas, actually, I served in Canada, as an instructor at the Staff College, uh, went to Lisbon into a NATO tour at a headquarters there, moved on to uh, Germany for another NATO headquarters tour after the uh, Lisbon headquarters closed, and then finished up with a final NATO tour at, at Virginia. Oh, wow. I retired as an 06 colonel in the Royal Air Force. We call that a group captain, NATO rank of OF5, and came back to aviation. So after, well, over 10 years of not flying, I've come back to flying. Just circling back after the Buccaneer, I that was retired from service at the end of my first tour. I did a long first tour of five years with aircraft, 
being retired from service, it comes a point where there's no point sending fresh blood onto them. So I did an extended tour to see the aircraft out of service, then transitioned across to uh, an aircraft called the Jaguar, which you guys always massacre by calling it the Jaguar. <laughs> so we'll have to practice that, the Jaguar. <laughs> that was really the main state of my career thereafter. And I rose through the ranks. I was a flight commander, a major or lieutenant colonel in Navy speak, and then finished on the Jaguar as the very last Royal Air Force Jaguar Squadron Commander. So I saw the Jaguar out of service. So that's two aircraft I've seen out of service. From there, I did one further tour in the UK in our Air Warfare Centre before then embarking on my sort of grand world tour, which was a great way to finish up my career. Great people, great capabilities, great airplanes along the way. And back to flying now. So I was uh, recruited by one of my Jaguar buddies in a moment of weakness at a reunion <laughs> who convinced me that there was a job with my name all over it. I uh, wasn't yet really convinced. I thought I might do one more tour, but I went along and looked at this smallish unit that does ISR, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, as well as sort of survey work. And actually, that really appealed to me, the idea of shaping a small unit and bringing the best of military service and aviation to this fairly embryonic organization trying to really sort of bring that small music cohesion focus high standards but with the agility to get on with things and make things happen that is sometimes denied you in a large organization like the military mm. where you can see what needs to happen but there's a civil servant somewhere who doesn't quite understand and takes forever to tell you no anyway <laughs> i'm really enjoying being back flying but shaping a small team encouraging people to maintain the best of the standards and disciplines that I learned in my career and having fun along the way. You know, aviation is something you come to with a passion. There's a love story behind every pilot's interest in aviation. At some point, we fall in love with the air or airplanes or just the whole experience. That's never dimmed for me. I still get a buzz out of getting airborne and seeing the sunrise or set or finding the, the target of interest we've been sent out to go and find in a choppy sea state yeah it's great but i'm in predominantly in a management position now which why it's all been a bit frantic and you had trouble tracking me down oh quite all right it was worth the wait and uh i totally get it once you meet pilots you know they have that far away look like they're not from this world right so you've been up in the clouds where no one else has been and yeah. and you've had those experiences and so i thought it was funny i was watching a video of one of the blue angel captains it was several years ago but he was at an air show and they were interviewing him and something flew over and he instinctively turned his head to look and see what it was i think we're just a different breed so yeah. i completely understand if i can apologize on behalf of my countrymen we have certainly abused the queen's language we like to say the hurricane instead of the hurricane that's right but i do make it john i make it a point when i see the car which i presume is pronounced the same way i say oh that's a really nice jaguar good man so i try good man i'm very impressed All right. <laughs> fantastic well i'll tell you what so we have a normal order of these and i've sent those to you and you're ready for these in any order but for my own sake i need to start with looks because i need to know i'm a visual learner i need to imagine what i'm looking at here so Let's start with the Buccaneers looks. Is it a one tail, two tail, one engine, two engine, high wing, low wing? I mean, honestly, this is bad. I know. Now this is going to be fun, actually. So, and particularly for a podcast, uh, you yeah, know, I'm, exactly. I'm now thinking that, of course, many of your readers may not have the same or may not have the familiarity. So it pressures on me to describe it accurately. I was also going to say I've rather barreled into this without refreshing my memory of flying this. Gosh, you know almost 30 years ago. Wow. I finished flying the Buccaneer in 1993. And I'm not 
refreshed my memory other than superficially. So this will be a test. But describing is easy enough. That is burned into my memory. So it, it's a big old airplane. It was in the fighter stream, as in our fighter pilots were sent to fly it. But really, it was very much a bomber and affectionately known as the last all-British bomber to be made by a company called Blackburn. In terms of configuration, it was a mid-wing, so not high or low wing, a mid-wing twin-engine aircraft with two big Rolls-Royce Spey engines sat either side of a tubular fuselage, a high T-tail, and a very distinctive look in so much as the designers incorporated something called area rule, whereby the cross-section of the aircraft was shaped to provide a constant aerodynamic shape, so minimal at the front and the rear, tapering at the front, tapering at the rear, but then with a uniform bulge through the midriff. So where you've got the wings increasing the surface area or the cross-sectional area, rather, they nipped in the waist. So it had this Coke bottle shape where you've got a, a nipped in waist and then a bit of a, a big ass at the back, as you guys would say, <laughs> where they bulged the rear to increase the cross-sectional area as the wings finished. Okay. Imagine a Coke bottle with wings two big toilet tubes either side for the engines, and then this kind of waspish tail, because it really did taper off to a point, and the rear was the clamshell air brake. So think about ah. a sort of a sting in the tail, and that would open up to slow the aircraft down when you wanted those air brakes. And then that high T tail as well, yeah. which was not particularly popular at the time they designed the aircraft, but for various reasons they decided that that was suitable for the Buccaneer. Well, a T tail, as you well know, is very good for certain things, and I won't try to remember all of them, and but it can be very difficult at high angle of attack, for example, because it gets blanked Absolutely. by the fuselage and the wings, etc. Yeah. But it's good. Uh, you see it on a lot of trainers and some airliners. I'll give you another couple of insights. Uh, you know, I have sure. did make notes. In terms of its looks and its feel, mm -hmm. I used that term earlier, ugly duckling, and it looked a bit of an ugly duckling <laughs> on the ground as well, okay. because it had this enormous undercarriage designed to be slammed into a carrier deck. And I always marveled when I did the walk around as to how this huge undercarriage, which looked like it was built out of tree trunks made of steel, how that all fitted into the recesses in the fuselage and under the wings. Yeah. And if you actually ever watched the undercarriage retract, it sort of twisted and contracted before it then folded up. It was quite a work of art, sort of a, one of these very clever puzzles as to how they got the undercarriage up in there. But it did look quite ungainly on the ground. And, and yeah. then it had this big fat ass that I've mentioned already. <laughs> And it waddled along. It did kind of sway on the ground. But then when you got airborne and the gear came up and she sort of settled into a flatter trajectory, then she really came into her own and, and looked sleek and mean and evil in the way that you want the fighter to look. Well, already you've taught me something, John, because again, your uh, countrymen there who are listening are throwing things at the radio right now, but I didn't even know this was a naval aircraft. So, oh, well, there you go. So I thought we'd introduce <laughs> that nice and early. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So in other words, this was uh, when you had like we have here with the catapults and the arresting gear. That's correct. I think you guys have gone more to the V-Stall or Stovall, however. So back in those days, okay. Did you take it to the carrier? No, I did not. That had all finished and the carriers were out of service by the time I oh, arrived okay. on a squadron. But we had, as I recall, I think HMS Ark Royal was the last carrier mm. in service. Gosh, I hope that's right. Or I'll have all manner of <laughs> Navy buffs, you know, sending me a hate mail. I believe she also operated off HMS Eagle. Forgive me if there's errors in there. That was before my day. But I do know... If you were a Buccaneer pilot, then it was incumbent upon you to understand, you know, the basic provenance and design history of the Buccaneer. Sure. Because it shaped so much about the Buccaneer. So it, it was 
a post-war aircraft designed in the 50s, you know, barely 10 years after World War II and piston engines. It was the early jet days, but the designs had moved on beyond those small, lightweight aircraft, you know, the Javelins, the Meteors, the Sabres. So it was the first of the bigger, more evolved jet fighters and fighter bombers, I suppose you would say. And certainly for the Royal Navy or for the UK, it was designed with a particular task in mind. So as the Cold War settled in as the primary threat to the West and to NATO, Mm. there was particular concern over a class of cruiser that the Russians had built called the Sverdlov, an enormous cruiser, you know, battleship, Tirpitz-esque thing that the Royal Navy had no real counter to. And rather than try and compete with an equivalent ship, the Royal Navy elected to counter this with air power. And, and of course, you know, one of the great lessons of World War II was the power and reach and lethality of air power. So the Royal Navy decided to invest in its carrier attack and carrier strike capability. Didn't have anything with the range and lethality to counter this particular craft, the Sverdlov cruiser. And so wrote a design requirement for what became known as the Buccaneer. It was all very classified at the time, and it was originally known, and I did look this up earlier, it was the Blackburn Naval Aircraft, and that became the Blackburn Advanced Naval Aircraft, which actually bridged into the Buccaneer forevermore being known as the Banana, not least because it had this kind of curve to it uh, <laughs> on its spine, so the, the Banana Bomber. Yeah. But it was a sea change, literally, for the Royal Navy from operating small, lightweight, fighters and fighter bombers this was a different class of aircraft i do remember a particular anecdote i think it was the designer roy boot so these are the days where this wasn't designed by a huge team and by computers this was a man with his technical drawing set and coming up with ideas and writing them down and i remember he gave a talk and he spoke in particular about how as they were sitting down with the royal navy staff towards the end of the design phase and someone pointed out ah you failed to capture one of the design requirements, we want handles on the wingtips. I beg your pardon. Yes, we have these handles so that if an aircraft lands and the brakes fail and it's going to trundle over the edge of the carrier, then anybody who's nearby can grab hold of the aircraft and stop it going over. To which the designer said, young man, this aircraft weighs 30 tonnes empty. If it's going over the side, I strongly suggest you sit back and watch it. Is anybody holding onto a handle is going to go with it. Yeah. So they conceded they didn't need handles on the wingtips to grab hold of this thing. My goodness, John. So that's where it came from. But it was also designed to lob a nuke at this Sverdlov. So we weren't messing around. We weren't going to go after these cruisers with penny packets. We were going to lob nukes at it. Well, <laughs> So it was designed to carry a nuclear bomb internally and to lob this thing as far as you could. You don't really want to be near those things when they go bang. No, I would say not. And you said you were flying that mission at 21 years old. Now, as the parent of a 21-year-old, that idea frightens me but it is quite scary isn't it so when i arrived and i saw the end of the cold war i arrived on a squadron in 1989 so my first my operational workup was first as an attack pilot and then quickly thereafter as a nuclear capable pilot and i got signed off as nuclear strike capable my navigator was 21 years old as well actually and we figured out that our combined age was less than our flight commander who was 43 at the time so which sounded old, didn't it? It did. Uh, <laughs> Goodness gracious. <laughs> All right. Well, you just answered the first question, which is good. But I had a lingering question on the looks that you just answered with the navigator. So I guess I'll just ask crew of two, I assume, but tandem or side by side? Tandem, but very slightly offset so that the uh, oh. the navigator had a reasonably clear view over the right shoulder of the pilot. Well, that's very peculiar. Yeah. 
<laughs> a little bit unusual. <laughs> All right. Well, you talked about the design history and requirements. JS, what did the aircraft in its service life end up doing most often? In other words, a lot of aircraft are built for one thing, like the A5 Vigilante, yeah. but end up doing something else. So it's roughly the same era. Did this end up doing a lot of maritime strike? Yeah. Hold on. You said you were in the Royal Air Force, right? Yes. So this was a dual-service aircraft? Well, it was Royal Navy initially, and then as the carriers went out of service, the Royal Air Force, rather begrudgingly, as I mentioned, took on the Buccaneer as a long-range <laughs> attack bomber, <laughs> Okay. having been denied the option of the all-British TSR-2, which was an advanced, low-level, penetrating, big old aircraft. Same sort of role as the B-1 mm-hmm. was designed for, but earlier and not as quite as large. Yeah. What did you end up doing mission-wise mostly when you flew it for your five years? So the Royal Air Force, having taken the Buccaneer, uh-huh. used them in both the maritime attack and also an overland attack role. So they were the mainstay of the RAS nuclear attack capability in, in RAF Germany for a long time, oh. with a number of squadrons stationed out there in a quick reaction alert role with nukes. By the time I joined the Buccaneer, those overland squadrons had been replaced by the Tornado and also the Jaguar. So the only two squadrons remaining in Royal Air Force service were in the maritime strike role, which I have to confess, didn't really light my fire, didn't really want to go and just fly around over the sea. So when I approached the end of my advanced weapons training in Royal Air Force flying training, my choices were to go and fly that the Harrier or the Jaguar or, or the Tornado or the Phantom F4 as it was still in service then all of which were denied to me, and I was sent to the Buccaneer. I was a little bit distraught about this, but as it happened, two other of my mates on that last course were assigned to the Buccaneer with me, which was quite unprecedented. Normally, there was a penny packet of one from each course to each of the various forces, but it just so turned out that the Buccaneer was desperate to boost its numbers. I don't really know why, I suppose, other than perhaps the fact, the realisation that they were going to have to stock up to see it through to the end of service. Yeah. So all three of us went up there with slightly disgruntled, but nevertheless determined to make the most of our tour. I say go up there because we're posted to the frozen wastes of northern Scotland, which is where the <laughs> Buccaneer was based at the time. But we all fell in love with it. We fell in love with the place. We fell in love with the aeroplane and, you know, had a great time as you do on your first one. Oh, week. yeah. So uh, did I answer the question? Uh, no, not really. So the Buccaneer was only employed in a maritime strike and attack role formally, although the conversion unit, had a role of being assigned to NATO to um, designate PGMs. Again, these were the early days of PGM precision-guided munition capabilities in NATO. Although you guys had brought these into service with great effect in the Vietnam era, they were not widely available in most frontline NATO service. I remember the uh, the Jeff 16s, for instance, they had a war role of taking out key bridges and they were equipped with LGBs, but they had no designation capability with their F-16s. So the buccaneers of the conversion unit, their war role was to deploy to Europe and then illuminate these bridges for the Dutch as they lobbed their uh, LGBs in, all from low level, in punk weather, with all of the horrific coordination required for cooperative designation, horribly complicated attacks. But, you know, the boys and girls, well, just boys in those days, of course. That's right. You know, came up with tactics that worked and they practiced and pretty nails, you know, flying around under a 500-foot cloud base with F-16s that had little or no inertial navigation system. Quite often, they'd be pointing at a different target as they pulled up to, <laughs> I'd hate to see what really came about. Yeah, that doesn't work too well. I mean, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but then when Gulf War One kicked off, 
the RF found itself in a similar dilemma that we had deployed Jaguars and Tornadoes to the Gulf, which had great effect initially. But as the air war went to medium level, those platforms, Tornado especially, were struggling to be effective at medium level. So it was apparent that we, or certainly the Royal Air Force, needed a laser designation capability. The only such capability in, in RAF service was with the Buccaneers. So we were sent out there at very, very short notice to assist the war effort by cooperatively designating those bombs for the tornadoes <laughs> with no workup, but no opportunity to practice beforehand. Just go. And just flash out there and rock up and make it up as we went along, which oh, was, uh, we can probably get to that later if you like. But yeah. Well, that is warfare, by the way. The summary of your question, yeah. it was a mix of persisting with the maritime role, but with an overland attack capability that really came okay. to the fore in the sort of twilight moments of the Buccaneer. Well, a lot to unpack there, but there's only two things I want to just really quick touch on. One is thank you for mentioning that your squadron was going to disestablish or disband or however you might put it. We just had a question on that last episode from uh, one of the listeners, and we often answer listener questions on the show. And one of them was, well, what happens to the pilots when they go away? And so you just helped make our point, which is they front-loaded it and then made you stay a long time, right? And then everybody went, so. Yeah, we all went on to other postings. I don't think, it, I think one guy went to a simulator job. He must have made someone unhappy. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I think he organized that because he wanted to go and fly that aircraft. So he sure. negotiated that if he did a tour in the simulator, then go and fly that aircraft. The other point I wanted to make was that you said you ended up loving it. And we've talked about that as well on the show. I think it was Ernest Hemingway who had a comment about you love your first aircraft. It's like a first maybe girlfriend, first kiss kind of thing. So Yeah, I think so. Hey, who else flies the or flew the Buccaneer besides the Royal Air Force and Royal Navy? Anyone? The only other nation was South Africa. Huh. The South African Air Force identified that they um, had a long-range attack requirement and the only aircraft available to them would come anywhere close was the Buccaneer. So they, uh, I think, got the number 24 in my head, but I may be mistaken. However, there was then an arms embargo placed on South Africa after they'd taken delivery of the first couple of waves. So their numbers were much reduced, Mm. but they used them to very, very great effect and absolutely loved them and found them to be a very capable, robust workhorse. And the key attribute of the Buccaneer was it had fantastic range, Ah. stable, high speed. We're going to come on to performance, I'm sure. And uh, good weapons carriage, you know, certainly eclipsing anything else in general service at the time. Well, weapons is coming up also, but I want to ask you about variants. Were there several different types of Buccaneers or just one? Not really. So there were two main variants. There was an early S1, which was equipped with Gyron Junior engines, which were acknowledged to be underpowered, but met the strict requirement of the naval air requirement. But the notion of flying an underpowered aircraft off of carriers must have been pretty <laughs> horrific. Yes. By the time the aircraft was brought into RAF service, they were all upgraded to the S2B standard, S standing for strike, which had Rolls-Royce Spey engines developing 11,000 pounds of thrust uh, apiece. Non-afterburning, so that clearly limits your absolute thrust, but the, the Spey was a big old donk <laughs> that had good static thrust Uh, and the advantage of not having an afterburner was you had much much greater fuel economy so the buccaneer was notorious for um having great legs and we would outrun our fighter opposition all the time and sure they theoretically could put two or three hundred knots of overtake on us but they could only hold it for five minutes whereas we could run at 580 knots all day long i exaggerate slightly but we certainly would run away we get a 
sniff on our radar warning receiver that you know we had bandits out in the left two o'clock so we'd disappear in fine pitch in the opposite direction and, sure. and run at max chat for 20 minutes just outpace people you know, if you look back in a deep six you'd see them sort of giving up at about 15 miles range and just turning for home because you'd run yeah. them out of fuel interesting yeah i guess in uh, the u.s we would use s as anti-submarine but you use s as strike so that's interesting all right how about weapons let's get to that so what did it carry in how many stations or was it internal it had an internal bomb bay right. which was designed for those nuclear bombs so it could carry two of those that same bomb bay could take four 1000 pound bombs or 500 kilogram bombs okay and then you had four external hard points two on each wing which could take a variety of stores it had a good old internal fuel load you rarely needed any external wing tanks sometimes we'd fly with one if you wanted a really really long range mission you'd fly with one under wing tank okay so you really had no problem with asymmetric stores which you know i learned subsequently is a problem on other aircraft yes <laughs> our typical maritime loadout when i started we had something called the um, martel missile which is a big old telegraph pole size missile with a dv seeker on the front mm. all terribly complicated you carried two of these missiles an electronic countermeasures pod and you also carried a um, data link pod, yeah. which pointed backwards. You had to fire your missile and then turn a very precise post-launch maneuver. I still remember it. Mm-hmm. it port 140, starboard 160, roll out on that heading. And that would put the cone of the rear-facing antenna in the right piece of airspace to pick up the missile as it headed off towards the ship you just fired it at. Whereupon the navigator would establish the link, pick up a picture on his TV screen and do his best then find the target on this grainy screen in front of him as he belted along at 100 feet and drive the missile into the ship. There were anti-radiation variants of that missile, which, as it sounds, were just home on the energy of the radars of the ships mm-hmm. you're attacking. And we would fire them in volleys. So you're trying to sort of shut down the radars to blind them whilst driving in with the TV-guided missiles. We had some pretty rudimentary tactics. We'd rush in behind the missile jamming down the line of the missile again to give it the best chance of surviving and then get to the point at which you were definitely going to die and then break away at 4G at 100 feet and put out as much chaff as you could and run away as low and fast as you could. Those missiles were replaced by the much more advanced Sea Eagle missile, which had a range from firing at 20 miles. The Sea Eagle comfortably doubled that. Which brought its own nuances in terms of tactics and saturating the ship. You wanted all your missiles to arrive at the same time right. from multiple points of the compass. So, And you'll understand this from your nautical background. So firing that far away, you've got to be pretty precise in calculating where your firing box has got to be displaced for wind to ensure that the missiles which fly at true airspeed then all arrive overhead the target at the same time. And there was a great deal of satisfaction in doing that. And we would more often than not, get to the firing point and then simulate the missile. So we drop to 100 feet, fly at the true airspeed of the missile, not change that at all, mm-hmm. and then see what point we arrived over the vessel. And, and if we arrived over the vessel as our colleagues appeared from stage left at exactly the same time, then we knew we'd got our firing boxes right. <laughs> it was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. 
In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading the supersonic bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. We had laser guided bombs in the maritime role as well. So for targets that weren't a complete porcupine of missiles firing back at you, we'd push in closer and lob LGBs at the target. But that got you into two or three miles, which against any yeah. decent military naval vessel is just operation certain death. I guess if you wanted to sink a fishing boat, it was pretty good. Well, it depends on the threat, right? So you yeah, match your tactics and your weapons to the of threat. Of course, absolutely. So that's why we had the laser designation capability right. then became much sought after in 1991. Okay. They were forward-firing rockets. They were out of service by the time I arrived because they put too much stress on the airframe, fatigue, that sort of thing. Too bad. And then all manner of conventional iron bombs. Any cluster munitions? Yeah, we still have those in those days. No cannon, okay. actually. It didn't have an internal cannon, oh, too which bad. is a great show. I did miss a cannon, but was very, very pleased to finally get my hands on one with the Jaguar. Well, the first weapon you talked about, the name I already forgot, is a lot like in the U.S. we had the SLAM, now the SLAM ER, yep. and the Walleye. That's right. And both of those had a system where you could launch it and then turn away, like you said, and then send signals. And anyone who remembers from Desert Storm is when CNN kind of came to be, right? There was footage that the military had given to CNN of the target just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's right. And that's essentially what you were recording in your aircraft. Yep. Yeah. Versus just seeing the target and all of a sudden a bomb flying in from the side. That's it. Awesome. All right. So performance, I guess you're probably not going to water my eyes here, but on the other hand, it's not probably a dogfighter, yeah? Correct. <laughs> Absolutely not. It was designed to go very fast, very low in a straight line, carrying as much as possible. Sure. And it did that really, really well. I mean, it was not an agile aircraft, but it was maneuverable. I mean, okay. certainly for nap of the earth flying, which the mm. Buccaneer excelled at, you could follow the twists and turns of the Scottish glens and the valleys of Wales, you know, very, very comfortably. It was, as I recall, a 6G limit. You didn't really routinely pulled more than 4G, but it was an agile bomber is probably the best way to describe it, but very solid. Sure. When she got up to speed, by which I mean anything above 300 knots, then she just settled into a different beast. Mm. Very, very stable, high wing loading. So just ride the bumps, very stable weapons platform, punch through turbulence. It's the only aircraft I've ever flown, and I'm going to borrow the phrase of a, one of my colleagues because uh, it really struck home with me when he first mentioned it. The only airplane you ever flew that you got a sense you could ram something and get away with it. In fact, you kind of wanted to go out and ram something. It's right, what can I go and hit with this? It was an exceptionally strong aircraft by design. Wow. In fact, many of the major components were milled from solid steel. Wow. So again, in terms of painting a picture, just think about a big lump of pig iron and chipping away all the bits you don't want until you've got an airplane shape. And that was kind of the buccaneer, really. So as you walked around, there was nothing on it that would flex to the touch. You know, if you banged your head on it, you're going to come away with a your bump. Head, yeah. You really were. <laughs> Obviously, there's no record for flying the lowest. You can only tie that. But did you spend a lot of time down at, what, 100 or 200 feet? Or Our standard operating height was 100 feet. Okay. Now, did you ever take one of these very high for any reason to get over some weather or anything? What was the highest you ever flew? I think I got one to about 100 feet shy of 50,000 feet once. Oh, wow. Check my logbook. It was a night mission, and I was on my own, and I was bored, so I just thought I'd see how high I can get, and just about clawed its way up there. So you could fly without the navigator? No, the navigator had to come along with me on oh, that. Oh, okay. So. 
technically could. There was a switch for the Bombay fuel tank that was only accessible in the back, but you could tie a bit of string around that fuse. <laughs> well, when you said alone, so you meant without a wingman or a flight I lead. did, I beg your pardon, okay. yes. No problem, my mistake. But in terms of low level, and that's really where she lived, and I, I guess I'm, it's long enough ago now that I'm safe and all the guilty parties won't be tracked down. I would hope. We were a bunch of hooligans, really. I mean, I look back in, with a little bit of shame in just what happened. And certainly as a responsible aviator now, having lost a good number of friends along the way, by the way, mm-hmm. I am uncompromising in the discipline I insist upon amongst um, my crews. But frankly, back then in the Cold War days, there was an element of hooliganism. I remember as we closed on the fleets on various exercises, the brief was not below the leader, which was a euphemism for all rules are suspended, but (laughs) just don't crash. So the leader would be down there at 0 foot 6, I mean, 20 feet, 30 feet, 15 feet. As long as you didn't go below him, not that he could see what was happening behind him particularly, no one turned an eye. I mean, you really could settle the aircraft down at, 10 or 15 feet. It was such wow. a stable platform. Gosh. My personal sort of yes to resistance if I was beating up a ship would be to sit a little bit higher. It was 44 feet wide. So I figured that that's 22 feet from centerline to wingtip. So if I sat at 30 feet, I could afford to put the aircraft on its ear without worrying about putting the wingtip in the water. So I would pretty much come alongside a ship at about 30 feet and aim to go from either stern to bow or vice versa with a little bit of offset yeah. and then put it to nine degrees of bank, pull four or five G towards the target vessel and cover the ship in a big condensed condensation cloud <laughs> and send that shockwave rippling down the side of the ship, which sucks the air out of sailors' lungs and you know leaves them with their ears ringing, which to me just was far more of a shock and awe than just going as low as you can and not daring to blink. Oh, I agree. And you were looking up at the bridge as you were doing that. Oh, absolutely. And on at least one occasion, sort of wincing a little bit as I misjudged it and flew between a few aerials. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. All right, John. Well, I used to ask the strengths and the weaknesses of the different aircraft, but for the Buccaneer, I've taken a new tack lately. What was your favorite feature and what was your least favorite feature? Oh, gosh, that's interesting. Or you can do strengths and weaknesses if you want, but again, it's... We'll do both, actually. That's a great question. (laughs) Let me do strengths and weaknesses first, then, actually. So I think I've covered it was a solid platform that inspired great confidence in the crews, had a great weapons loadout. It was 30 tons empty. It had a max wall-up weight of over 60 tons. It could carry more than its own weight in fuel and weapons. Mm. Uh, Carry them a long way to those very efficient, lean, non-afterburning engines. It would do 600 knots, depending on how bent the aircraft was. So it didn't really seem to make much difference what you were carrying. So it hit a brick wall of about 600 knots, whether you were clean or whether you had four Seagull missiles, which was phenomenally impressive. But it did kind of stuck at about 600 knots. So I think the um, limit was 580. I took one to 620 because you did that. You just know how fast will it really go? But it started to go a little bit sideways after that. The T-tail wasn't quite high enough. Uh Legend was they condensed it to fit into the carriers. It could have done with a little bit more yaw stability. I see. So strong, fast, great weapons loadout, great fuel economy. Weaknesses were at higher levels, and certainly if you got slow, it was a bit of a handful. Down below 300 knots, you had to give the aircraft your utmost attention or it would bite you. There were no automatics. There was nothing to protect you from a spin if you mishandled it. You could mishandle it very quickly if you were clumsy. When you configured to land in its fully configured landing configuration, it really was quite a handful. As you broke into the circuit, you swapped hands three times, pulling various switches and levers and 
watching gauges that seemed to be placed deliberately on opposite sides of the cockpit. So you had to point eyes in different directions at the same time, like some sort of chameleon. I might exaggerate slightly, but only slightly. So as you came into land, you dropped your flap, obviously. You also drooped the aileron. So the ailerons took up most of the span of the wings. They're very effective at a very, very fast rate of roll. But to have a, a low enough landing speed, particularly for carrier operations, the whole of the aileron drooped. You then needed to pull a big lever down by the right-hand side to give you another five degrees of aileron movement because they were now being blanked by the camber of the wings, so they were less effective. The trim change of that had to be counteracted by tailplane flap, which moved upwards in the opposite direction to a normal flap to counter the trim change. Otherwise, you didn't have enough pitch authority with the all-moving slab tailplane. One of the quite advanced features was rather than having slats on the leading edge, designers went for something called, uh, you'll be familiar, I'm sure, uh, boundary layer control. Mm. So a high pressure bleed was tapped off the engines to blow over the leading edge of the wings, the tailplane and the flaps to fool the wing into thinking it was flying faster than it was effectively. Technically, it makes sure that the airflow doesn't separate right. quite as early as it should, which gave you a lower approach speed. To do that, you had to watch carefully the amount of pressure that was being pushed over the wings. Because if you throttle back and that pressure drop, you're going to drop out of the sky like a stone or mm. rather a big pig iron piece of metal. <laughs> to have the engines at a high enough RPM to generate that power, but still be slow enough, you did the approach with the air brake out. So the air brake, that sting in the tail that I was talked about, the big clamshell air brake, very effective. Mm. You took full air brake and used power against the air brake to get that air pressure over the wings. But you're watching constantly the um, speed, the angle of attack, the pressure over the wings. As you take the tailplane flap, you have to make sure that travels in, in sequence with the ailerons. If they get more than seven degrees out of sequence, the aircraft comes uncontrollable and you have to eject. And once all that's configured, the aircraft is inevitably, and again, because they're getting quite old and they're all built by hand, so they're all a little bit different. <laughs> So it would wallow through the sky. I remember my first solo, actually. So there were no two-stick versions in service. Okay. Uh, the simulator was rudimentary. There was no visuals, no movement. It was just a procedures trainer. Right. You had a few trips in a Hunter that looked nothing like a Buccaneer, flew nothing like a Buccaneer, but it had a Buccaneer instrument panel that didn't work very well. <laughs> Someone figured that was a good idea. Yeah. So you did half a dozen trips in the Hunter, then you got let loose in a Buccaneer. With no two stickers, it was your first go, which isn't that unusual. I think the U.S. Navy did do that quite regularly. But having only ever flown the little lightweight Hawk trainer to suddenly be in this 63-foot-long, 44-foot-wide, 40-ton monster was quite a step change. <laughs> I loved it. I remember rocketing skywards because it was quite a light fuel load mm. on my very first mission out of RF Lossmouth, my very first trip, rather. Yeah. quite distinctly. And we went off and flew at low level over the sea and, and climbed up and did all manner of various exercises. But eventually it comes to the point you've got to come back and figure a land, which had this legendary fear status, not least because the poor instructor in the back, I remember glancing in the mirror and I just saw these eyes like saucers as he's gripping <laughs> the glass screen with what I'm sure were white knuckles, even through his gloves. Yeah completely out not in control of his destiny as this young 21 year old sort of starts configuring but i got downwind and i look off to my left to rf lossmouth and it seemed like a reasonable assumption to move the control column towards the runway so that i could commence my base turn and nothing happened other than after a slight pause we started rolling off to the right so i'm rolling right with left control column thinking, okay, that's not quite right. So let's yeah. see what a big boot full of rudder does. So a huge boot full of left rudder, and the aircraft slews back to the left and 
secondary effect of your we roll to the left. Fantastic. So I'm rolling the right way now. But now I've got enough angular bank to fly around final. So I better stop that roll. So the rudder seems to be working. I'll, I'll use opposite aileron. Yeah, that's worked. Now, because I've got cross controls, full left rudder, almost full right aileron, and pulling back on the control column to keep the nose up. And the aircraft's flying beautifully around this balance turn towards the runway. And I've actually got full pro spin controls on. <laughs> Everything looks good, and poor old guy in the back has no idea what's happening down in my lap here, and the yeah. ball's in the middle, and I wait until the runway's in the front, centre everything up, the buccaneer wallows into a kind of a straight line, and then points to the runway, and we drive on down. You don't flare, you just drive it into the runway, it's designed for carrier landings. Right. I was gritting my teeth thinking that was going to hurt, but then you've got those tree trunk steel undercarriage that just yeah. absorb the impact, and uh, there you go. Yeah. Well, I know you never did it, but how on earth did people do that at the ship? incredible enormous yeah, I mean, uh, credit must have been crazy just reminded me actually so other things about the buccaneer maximum fuel capacity was twenty-two thousand pounds wow so we would often figure one as a tanker as i know you did with the f-18 uh-huh. so we'd go off and do tactical air to worry fueling with each other yeah okay what didn't i like well, hold on before you go, because I got a couple of things I want to ask about. So right. we had the Droop ailerons and the F-18 as well. You said it has no automatics. And again, we speak the same language, but only sort of, right? Do you mean by that, like automatic flight controls or fly-by-wire or something like that? Yes, absolutely. The days of bullies and bell cranks and gotcha. everything that was connected to it. There was a um, auto stabilizers that sort of damped out oscillations okay. and a very, very rudimentary autopilot, which I think worked on maybe three hours of my 1000 hours on the buccaneer <laughs> okay and then yeah the boundary layer you know whenever i hear that discussion it reminds me of the cartoon of a young boy or something you know just a person sitting in a rowboat excuse me a sailboat because that's important holding a fan right like a fan on your desk and then pointing it at the sail yep no one has ever told me whether that works or not but <laughs> that's always what i think it's like well wait does that actually work <laughs> But for boundary control, again, it's to keep that high energy level right next to the wing, right? That's right. Okay. And then, again, just very briefly, but I know you didn't do it, but did you ever either hear stories or talk to someone who did bring this aboard the ship? Was it pretty harrowing? Absolutely. The sort of squadron uncle, if you like, on my first squadron, had flown extensively in the um, carrier role. I don't think I mind if I give him a mention. Rick Phillips, a real gentleman. I think he's still serving in a reserve capacity. Wow. So certainly he came along to my dining out night from the Royal Air Force and had 50 years of continuous service under his belt at that point. That was uh, three years ago. So Rick Phillips was a very dear friend and a great mentor to me as a young pilot on a Buccaneer squadron because he had so much experience, such a wealth of experience. I remember watching in awe as he slipped behind the tanker and just shot into the uh, drogue in one fluid movement. And it took me a good many years before I could get close (laughs) to emulating that. He certainly had a few good stories of approaching completely blacked out ships and popping out a cloud, looking ahead and seeing a very, very small cluster of lights and thinking, is there really a large area of steel amongst those that little postage stamp of lights? That must have been really quite something. Yeah. Well, it wasn't an F-18 and I had a heads up display and flight control computers and everything else. So, well, God bless those men who did that. Absolutely. So there was no head-up display in the Buccaneer. There was a huge airspeed indicator mounted on the combing on the right and a huge radio altimeter mounted on the combing on the left. So once you were down low and flying visually, you had your speed and your height right there in your sort of line of vision. That's smart. You had a little strike sight, sort of sighting glass. You actually had a little lever. You raised this thing up. It's like something out of World War II. (laughs) 
because you, you dropped yeah. it out of the way normally, so it didn't yeah. get in the way. But then when you came into the tank, you would lift this thing up and squint through it. Okay. How did you do dropping iron bombs with something like that? Were you decent? Remarkably, yes. Yeah. Of course, it helps if you're low. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You get low enough, it does make it easier. And our scores are pretty good, albeit on an academic range. I think to drop on a undulating terrain would have been a mm. completely different challenge. But then, you know, our forebearers did that in World War II with pretty good good effects. You know, you yeah. get in close and, uh, and if you drop enough bombs as well, if you drop a stick of four, then that's going to really... That's right. Or if they're big enough. <laughs> that helps you out. Yeah. Yeah. All right, John. So I interrupted. Uh, you were going to start, I'm sure, very gently since it's your first love, but talking about some of the things you didn't like or the weaknesses, perhaps. Yeah, I think the only thing I didn't like was it was a bit of an ergonomic disaster. I mean, you became <laughs> comfortable with it. It was your slum. Looking into the cockpit was always a bit of a shock when you first met the Buccaneer. Uh-huh. And although you learned to love it and or put up with it, it could have been so much nicer with a modern suite of avionics. A head-up display would have been really nice. Yeah. I was personally frustrated that as the driver, and you did feel like the driver because you were so close to the ground most of the time, you didn't have as much direct control over the sensors. You know, as Subsequently, as a single-seat pilot, you know, I took great delight in managing the navigation suites, the, the targeting pod helmet-mounted displays, data links, all of those to me made the sense of accomplishment of achieving a difficult task that much richer because you were managing your systems as well as flying the aircraft. I mean, it was an effective combination. I enjoyed flying with my navigator colleagues. They're very great friends. They were very good. We were blessed to have frankly, the best of the navigator selection from each course was sent to us because it was such a demanding role to be flying that aircraft in that particular maritime role. So we were blessed to have great crews and a great camaraderie. But I was personally felt a little bit underwhelmed, I suppose, by the operational demand upon me. Uh, Although that said, in my first exposure to operations in the Gulf War, which came at an early stage in my career, I was very, very happy to have someone along with me helping me with that task, particularly in that, in that role. I'll bet. And you know, another pair of eyes to look out for things coming up to go bang. Oh, I'll bet. All right, John. Well, this is a lot of fun. We're just down to the last couple of questions, though. Notoriety. Now, this brings us back to the beginning, which is, again, I feel a little sheepish now learning so much about this aircraft and really starting to love it. But I think the Brits probably uh, know it pretty well. But where would the rest of the world besides South Africa know about this aircraft? Has it been in any movies? Was there a performance team doing air shows? I doubt that. How does the layperson know the Buccaneer? That's a challenging question, actually, because it was only operated by the Royal Air Force and the South African Air Force. I'm not mm-hmm. sure it would have worldwide notoriety. It did pop onto the radar, perhaps, during one of the various conflicts in the Lebanon in Beirut. The Buccaneer was tasked to go and fly through Beirut City as a demonstration of air power mm-hmm. on behalf of the United Nations, as I recall. Shortly before I arrived in the squadron, but they had um, particularly unusual coverage or rather the they really flew through the city not over it they were down amongst the tower blocks to really sort of put some thunder in downtown beirut and send the message that there were weapons of war watching what was going on if people didn't behave themselves and that Mm. seemed to have the effects required it dampened down tensions and perhaps sent the message that there were more capable players about to get involved Thereafter, I think most people will remember, um, if not realize it at the time, that that footage that you mentioned earlier of bombs going into targets in Gulf War One 
most of that for the UK was from Buccaneers. Now, uh-huh. we rushed into service a um, new targeting pod onto a couple of tornadoes, so I wouldn't wish to um, not give appropriate credit to my tornado colleagues there. And they did a spectacular job with, with actually a more advanced pod. We had the old Pave Spike pod from Vietnam era. But most of the bombs that were um, guided onto targets with precision by the Royal Air Force were from the Buccaneers. Okay. So it was designed as a low-level maritime attack aircraft, and of course it went into war for the first time at medium level in an overland role. Hmm. So as you mentioned earlier, that is the nature of warfare, isn't it? It's, it's not necessarily what you expect, but hopefully the agility and flexibility that your training has instilled in you allows you to uh, overcome whatever's thrown at you. And that was very much the case, and we, it was a very successful employment of the buccaneer even though we did not have well rehearsed tactics you know we had not practiced medium level deliveries in fact the royal air force as a whole had not really considered a medium level engagement we were focused on that low level cold war eastern european scud in under the cloud drop the bombs and run home again so going in at medium level was a wake-up call and, and one that was overdue yeah but one which the buccaneer excelled at and its performance at medium level was impressive well, it sounds like another opportunity for your countryman, Roland White, to write a book, because it sounds like there's some history with the Royal uh, Military doing this as far as uh, equipping ships to run down to the Falkland Islands and then the Vulcan bombers to do those long trips. And so you're always adapting something to get the mission done, and you usually do it quite well. So, yeah. Roland, if you're out there, here's a, another opportunity. He's probably already all over it. There was a book, I forget the name of it right now, there was a fictional book oh. of a buccaneer that was pressed into service after it'd been retired in a clandestine cia type operation to interdict Ah. drug smuggling boats out of south america and and this aircraft with its range and a retrofitted cannon was deemed to be the perfect of course i got hold of the book and read it it was a good yarn yeah too bad and there's a good picture of it on the front i might even put it on my shelf probably somewhere all right so let's talk a little bit about Desert Storm, but this is also the part in the interview where I generally ask about some particular mission that is memorable to you. So if you have some experiences in Desert Storm that suit that answer, great. Or if not, if there's one particular flight that just really stands out when you think back to your Buccaneer time, John, either way, you got an option here. Easy one to answer. My first mission and my last mission, actually, were the ones that perhaps stand out the most. Okay. First one for trepidation i suppose we were tasked against uh, one of those enormous iraqi airfields out Kadam, that had only that morning downed the last aircraft in the stream it had been shot down by a, a sam 2 very sadly killing the navigator who is a colleague gone through training about the same time the pilot ejected and survived and was subsequently released but i remember voicing some concerns at the nature of our attack i felt we were setting a precedent with the formation that we were adopting as we ran into these attacks. And all of my training had instilled upon me the the need to not set patterns and to always present the enemy with a different presentation, try and keep them guessing. So we'd settled into this fairly rigid stream from one direction of tornadoes and buccaneers. And this just seemed to me that as the youngest, least experienced pilot there, I was never going to get a great deal of traction. And I did not fully comprehend just how difficult it was to coordinate those attacks. And Mm. given that we hadn't really had the opportunity to practice particularly complex tactics, there was an element of necessity to it, but I still felt that we were being overly predictable. And I voiced that concern as we were planning our mission, told firmly to get back in my box. (laughs) I was number eight of the stream of eight, and that was my job. All right. 
as we sort of got to the end of our planning phase, we learned that number eight in the stream in the morning had been shot down, which you know, <laughs> oh, gosh. kind of, so I thought, gave me a renewed sense of legitimacy for my concerns, mm-hmm. which I sort of tentatively raised again, but really got told firmly to get back in my box. And off we went and we flew the mission in a trail of ducks from the same direction as the morning. And I got targeted. Our radar warning receiver lit up with a SAM-2. We jinked a bit, threw some chaff out. Didn't really understand how to evade those missiles, particularly effectively at that time, because we'd never operated at, at medium level. I got away with it on that afternoon. We struck the targets, came home again. I made it my mission to look up the F-4 Wild Weasel guys that night. I went and found where they were. Is it right? Can you talk me through how best to survive a medium level sound engagement? So we really were taking it upon ourselves to figure out how to wow. prioritize those missions. That was a successful mission. We struck the targets. We actually had a bit of a malfunction with our pod. As the laser depressed, the screen became all opaque. And with seconds to go, because the next wave of bombs had just been released, I figured, well, it was clear earlier, it must be to do with the, there must be some kind of condensation or perhaps crazing in the glass at lower depression angles. If I pull the aircraft around and point at the target, we're going to bring the laser look angle back up to a lower angle, and that should hopefully restore the picture. So with the bombs in the air, that's what we did. It really was a case of hold your breath, hold your nerve, crank the aircraft around the corner, drop the nose. All of this is manually controlled. There was no inertial stabilization for the uh, pod. He, um, bless him, picked up the target, acquired it, with great discipline, had turned the laser off while we did all this, refired it. I think we probably had five, six, maybe seven seconds maximum before a predicted time of impact, but that was enough for the weapon to pick up the laser and home in on that hardened aircraft shelter we were designating. And we got uh, some satisfying secondary explosions off of that target, so there was clearly something in there that Saddam wanted to hide from us. Hmm. So that was the first one. A number of the missions suffered for poor weather that year. So there were a number of missions where we got to the target and couldn't be effective because we were stuck in cloud. They had their own moments of excitement as you get lit up by missiles in cloud. So medium level SAM evasion, although at least I now had the wise words of the uh, wild weasel voice in my back pocket. Okay. And then the last mission, towards the end, we actually carried our own bombs as well so that we could then pick off any targets that had been missed in the cooperative attacks. And I remember uh, as I rolled over to sort of drop down to drop my home weapons, which is madness, really. We've now been over the target for 10 minutes and we caught them by surprise when we arrived. Now everybody's awake. In fact, they've brought in all their mates from the local towns <laughs> to right. uh, join in throwing lead into the air. And I, mm-hmm. I remember looking down, seeing this sea of AAA below me. Never even occurred to me to think this is a bad idea. I just rolled over and dived down into it. <laughs> that was my job. And I was 23 years old by then, but no less invulnerable in my head. Mm. So yeah, those do stand out. Wow. Well, how long after that did the Buccaneers stay in service? So of the two squadrons, one went out of service in 1993. That was number 12 squadron. That was my squadron. So at that point, I moved on and went to the Jaguar. Okay. The other squadron stayed in service through until 1994. Another year. Again, another six to eight months. And then there was a Vulcan doing the air show circuit as late as, I think, 2015. Was there a one or two Buccaneers still flying for a while, or did they hang it up and that was it? Not in UK service. There's one, so far as I'm aware, still flying in Thunder City in South Africa. Oh, wow. So as I recall, and this isn't my area of expertise, the UK CAA rules is you're not allowed complex aircraft to fly on the civil register. So okay. by that, I mean aircraft with a either a powered flying controls hmm. or 
think it may be afterburning. Well, so either of those, I think... You didn't have that, you said. So we didn't have afterburners, but there was no manual reversion for okay. control. So if you have a failure of the hydraulics, the aircraft is just a lump of pig iron that's going to come down. <laughs> Whereas things like the Hunter, they had a manual reversion. Even though they had hydraulic controls, you could revert to manual control. Okay. And are these able to be seen, I'm guessing, at various museums around the UK? Yeah, there's a number. I'm, I'm not sure that I could... Accurate. I know there's one at Elvington in Yorkshire, because okay. that's the Buccaneer Aircraft Association sort of queen. There were some in running condition. They would do sort of high-speed runs up and down. There's a civilian airport at Bruntingthorpe, but I believe that's been bought up and the runway is no longer available. So I'm not oh. sure what's happened to those, to be perfectly honest. Oh. There were a number that were in certainly condition for high-speed taxiing and theoretically able to fly, though not allowed to, owned privately. But I've lost track of where they are. Come on, high-speed taxiing? I mean, that's like oh. getting undressed and getting in bed and then just stopping there. I mean... Yeah, I'd just be too <laughs> tempted just to keep going. <laughs> well, that's the point I was trying to make, and it's not a very good analogy. I apologize, but... One big circuit, he's going to notice. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John. Well, gosh, this has been hugely illuminating for me because, again, it's two Cs, one N, two Es, right? That's correct. Yes, sir. <laughs> Yep. But this has been great. What did the, I not the, ask you about the Buccaneer? The banana bomber. Yeah, there you go. That's a bunch of A's and N's. That's hard too. But what does the listener and, and I, I guess I'm now in a bad grammar sentence here, but what do we need to know? Because I've enjoyed everything so far. It was a legend. There's an amount of reverence that accompanies any mention of the Buccaneer amongst anybody who operated in the RAF in the time that it flew or, or shortly after. I mean, it had a reputation for getting through to the target, irrespective of the opposition. Really good crews, very focused, somewhat hooliganistic, but they knew how to get the job done. Parted hard. Oh, my goodness. I certainly can't talk about some of those stories without compromising myself and too many others. <laughs> there was definitely yeah. a play hard, work hard. Oh, yes. There. Sometimes they were in too close proximity, shall we say, on occasion. We have identified that proclivity of fighter pilots quite frequently here on this show. Uh, so society is different today. Of course, everyone has a internet access right on their phone. So when you go out to have a few drinks, everything's uh, on there for tomorrow. So that's a bummer. Yeah, but I think I'm fortunate to have flown in an age when those didn't exist. I think I'd definitely yeah. have been arrested otherwise. Well, but you're still flying. So what's the future for you? You're going to keep doing what you're doing? and uh... Yeah, I keep going. With the company I'm with is making great strides. It's been very difficult being a British company servicing European contracts in an age okay. of you know, our separation from the European Union and with COVID, you know, trying to move our crews around Europe to service contracts has been astonishingly challenging. Every week when I think it can't possibly get any more difficult, another challenge has arisen. So I've just stopped tempting fate by saying that. But it has been immensely rewarding to endure and grow to ever greater success in such a climate. We have been successful. We're expanding. I'm enjoying bringing young pilots in. We do generally recruit young pilots because many of them come to us wanting to build their hours before going to the airlines. I'm delighted to say a lot of them realize that actually what we offer them is much more exciting than they're likely to get, albeit in bigger aircraft. So right now, the downturn in the wider industry is definitely helping us, but we've not seen the sort of throughput that we would expect. We're managing to mm. hang on to people because it's challenging flying. We're stepping up to some bigger aircraft, King Airs, you know, 350s. Okay. So I can now offer our young pilots a path of progression as well, which has its own merits. And it's fantastic. It's exciting. I get to fly, get to talk about airplanes and 
stories of yeah. daring do and i hope mold and shape those young pilots into diligent disciplined determined aviators which you know is always you know a pleasure Fantastic. That sounds like it should be on a poster somewhere. So that's good. John, well, this has been a lot of fun. We already know John Sullivan, JS, not horribly uh, creative, but let me ask you this. If you could choose your own tough guy call sign, what would it be? Viper, assassin, oh, ass kicker? We've already said the word ass, so we might as well just stick with that, right? Um, yeah, I don't know, actually. Uh, I don't know. It's, uh... Spine ripper? Fire streak or something. Fire streak. Just, there yeah. you go. That sounds like a missile or something. Yeah, well, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, well, that's too much of a mouthful, isn't it? It's got to be short and sharp. Yeah, because you have to be able to scream fire streak yeah. break right, but that gets caught up in there. So by the time I tell you to break right, you're probably going to be hit by that SA2 that didn't yeah, hit you the I, first couple times it tried. You should have given me some <laughs> forewarning there. I'm sure it could have. Sorry. Well, hey, you know, this isn't just a one-night stand. We'll catch you as a friend of the podcast. So someday, if you're out in your little airplane and you have the epiphany of the perfect call sign, let me know. And we'll interrupt our next episode to let people... Do you know, I think I'm going to harp back to some of my Buccaneer colleagues. I think they would be disappointed if I didn't offer up Sonny. In one of the sort of squadron cartoons, I got dubbed Sonny Jolivan. Uh, sort of a play on my name. It was a cartoon <laughs> character that got into all sorts of mischief. They juxtaposed the uh, first letters a little bit. Yeah. Sonny Jolivan. Okay. That was a sort of a parody, but not too much of a parody on that youthful ebullience that sort of thought it was always a good idea to do daft things, usually with not enough clothes on. <laughs> so I guess Sonny would be my... Uh, Awesome. Oh, fantastic. Well, we've had certain themes throughout this show, so <laughs> that's been good. All right, John. Well, you've been a good sport. And like you said, it took a year. I don't blame it on you. You know, things happen. Life happens. COVID happened. No, that's very kind, sir. Thank you. Here we are finally. And uh, it was everything I hoped it to be. And honestly, you delivered quite well. I dare I say I might have to try this no research thing more often because that was a lot of fun, but maybe not. But anyway, I really want to thank you for your time today, John, and for uh, teaching us about the uh, Buccaneer. Indeed. We should do it again sometime. We could chat about the Jaguar. The Jaguar. Yeah, well, we haven't had that on yet, so uh, we might just have to do that. All right. Hey, great to talk to you, Vincent. Really enjoyed it. Every fighter pilot likes talking about his airplanes and himself. Hurrah. That was a real pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, thanks again, John Sullivan, for that really enjoyable discussion on the Buccaneer. So afterwards, yes, I did go Google it and I took a look and I thought he did a really nice job of describing it. Frankly, it looks about like I imagined. I can't, though, imagine landing that thing on the flight deck. And when I listened to myself on the interview, and he had already said that he was in the Royal Air Force, I should have known better than to ask him if he took it to the ship. But, you know, interviewing is not easy, by the way, folks. You should really try it. But at any rate, I thought we had a good discussion and a really fun time there and covered a lot of interesting things. I did get an email from one of our Patreon supporters who gets to listen to the unedited interviews early, who sent me some more information on the South African Buccaneers. That was pretty interesting too. And yes, there was some sort of embargo and they didn't get enough, but they did use them pretty well, I guess, against Angola or something like that. Anyway, I thought he was a good sport. Thanks again, John. We're going to have more British jets in the future. Actually, I've uh, got a lead on a Jaguar and we're talking to Mr. Ian Black about doing the lightning because we definitely need to cover that one. And we've been working with him for a while. So hopefully we can make that happen. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of notes here. I just really enjoyed that. So thanks again to John and thanks to my team for setting that up and for giving me the resource sheet to study, even though I didn't. And I thought it turned out pretty good. So who knows? Maybe I'll go into this cold turkey more often. 
All right, well, we can begin to wrap this up. As always, the views expressed in this presentation are my personal views and those of my guest and are not directly attributable to his or my departments of defense or whatever they might call them over there. You know what? Again, it's a lot going on here. I don't know if I need to keep telling you that, but just suffice to say, I've got a bunch of balls in the air right now that I'm juggling. So we're going to wrap this up and move on. I will tell you this. I will not be back next episode, as always, at the end of the month. Well, as usual, I should say. But we'll be back, and I don't know if he's ready to go public or not. So he's going to talk about a Japanese fighter from World War II. So, Boat, hope I didn't give it away here. After that... We are going to have Bomber Month again in December because nothing says the holidays like a bomber. Am I right? So we've got Boat, who's going to do one. I believe he's doing the B-24 Liberator because we already did the B-25 Mitchell. I still get those mixed up. And then our past B-52 guest, Ken Katz. Remember Primetime? He was a flight engineer. I asked him if he was interested in maybe coming and helping out, and he said, yeah, absolutely. So he's got a gentleman who was in Bomber Test, talks about flying the B-52 and B-52 one and test. And then he's got another one on the FB 111. So I will see you, I think probably at the beginning of one of those, just to make some quick announcements. Otherwise that might do it for me this year. I hate to say it. I might replay that. Here comes Santa Claus, NORAD thing. And I don't know yet if we'll do an end of the year summary, like we sometimes do, but this is probably the last feature episode for me for the year. It's been a great year. Wow crazy year between my brother and my in-laws who are having some health challenges right now and everything else that's going on. It's been a great year and an awful year all in one. And that is life, isn't it? So I hope you have great holidays. I hope you have a great next 10 days till boat can come back and give you a little hit again. In the meantime, thank you personally for me, for all your support, for your letters, for your social media comments. This, as I said before, show has been a real blessing to me and it's just such an encouragement. I just want to thank you. So take care. Happy holidays. Appreciate you tuning in to the Fighter Pilot Podcast and we'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.